Why did you feel you had to lie on your police report? I thought it would be a better explanation under the circumstances. What you're really saying is that you didn't want to go on record admitting that you believed in Boggs. The Bureau would expect something like that from Spooky Mulder, but not Dana Scully. Hello, and welcome to Discovering the X-Files, the podcast in which a newbie, that's me, takes a deep dive into the entirety of Chris Carter's creepy universe, as longtime fans escort me on the journey, a journey filled with paranoid conspiracies and monsters of the week. I'm Eric's Antoine, and today I'm once again sitting down with the Director Club's Jim Laskowski, it's a pleasure to have him, and we will be discussing Beyond the Sea, which originally aired in the U.S. on January 7th, 1994. It was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, and directed by David Nutter. In this episode, Scully's father dies. Shortly afterwards, she and Mulder are put on the case to find a serial killer and rescue a kidnapping victim, which has them come into contact with death row prisoner Luther Lee Boggs, at which point Scully's skepticism is put to the test when he exhibits psychic powers and the ability to apparently commune with the dead. Brad Dourif is this week's guest star, and Don Davis makes his first appearance as Captain William Scully in this very dramatic Monster of the Week episode. After the break, Jim and I are going to get into it. Stick around. I know what you want, and I know who you want to talk to. Why don't you just go ahead and ask me? I believe you, if you let me me talk to him. Oh, no, no, nobody talks to anybody until I get a deal. Don't underestimate my fear of dying and don't downplay my terror going back to that chair. I know my hell's gonna be going back to that chair over and over again for all the time, but in this life, my one and only life, I don't ever wanna go back again, ever! Yeah, so uh, this was a really good episode, Jim. Uh, We are talking about a... uh... Another winner here, I think. You had seen it before, correct? And so obviously, I mean, you, it had been a while since you'd seen it, but uh, you, you just recently revisited now and you were floored by it. Let's start. Yeah, it, it, it's good to be back for yet another sort of movie-inspired episode that uh, it, it surprised me mainly because, you know, the first time I'd seen this, it was probably with my dad. Because uh, he he he's I think he was a fan overall of the show. There were certain episodes that I think he liked more than others, mo- like most people. But I, watching it now, uh, you know, unfortunately, I you know I've since lost my dad, and anything that has to do with the loss of a parent adds an extra emotional weight behind it for me. When I whenever I see something like that, and I had completely forgotten 
that that's kind of what kicks off the whole episode. My only memories of it, of course, are of Brad Dourif being the incredible actor that he can be. Basically, like the reason why I love Exorcist Three so much is partially due to his incredible work in that film. Yes. So anytime he's basically incarcerated, uh, he does some of his best work in in general. So, but again, like when we start off this episode, I was like, oh man, I I completely forgot this is uh, you know, it basically starts with Scully losing her father, and. That's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. And, and I think that, you know, they wanted to give Scully more, and it's clear because, man, Mulder sits out of kind of half this episode. They wanted to give her more depth and uh, more of an arc. And so people could sympathize with her more because a lot of people kind of wrote her off at the beginning mm-hmm. as, you know, being, you know, just, I don't, I don't want to use the word bitchy, <laughs> but, you know, certainly just not as, she's not the believer. And right. so for this episode to have that challenge so directly, I think gave her more dimension. And this is essentially, this is essentially her story as much as it is uh, about the, uh, the, the, the psychic transmissions that Brad Dourif has. So it's, it's got this incredible balance of like silence of the lambs, like uh, dynamics between uh, Scully and uh What's his serial killer's name again? I forgot his name. Uh, Luther Lee Boggs. That's right, Boggs. Okay. And obviously the <laughs> the serial killer that they're trying to find has a very clever name <laughs> with Lucas Henry. I was like, oh, come on. How much more yes. obvious can you get? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, maybe, you know, this might be a little insider baseball. We should we should throw that out there. So the names of both of them, because they're both serial killers. So, you, you know, you've got the one who's in jail, Dorif. Luther Lee Boggs, and then you've got the one that they're chasing, who's uh, Lucas Henry. And uh, there was an actual serial killer named Henry Lee Lucas, who inspired, in fact, the, the, the famous film Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, the very disturbing film Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So that's that's what that is. Um, yes, very, very good points. No, I think it's, it's got a very powerful, it opens in a very powerful uh, way. You know, you have a very yeah. powerful cold open which seems a bit, uh, because, okay, one thing I wanted to point out, this is not a mythology episode, quote-unquote. It is a, it's not connected to the alien conspiracy. But what this episode uh, sort of uh, allowed me to see is that um, the X-Files episodes tend to be categorized just by two, like just in two categories. Just you have, you have your mythology episodes and you have your, your Monster of the Week episodes, and then you have those camps. But I think people tend to write off that even if it's not a mythology episode, in this particular case, it may not be a mythology episode, but I think it is essential because it is so much about character and character uh, exploration and character depth that gives us the backstory. It gives us some of uh, Scully's backstory. It is an essential episode. I mean, it's one of those things where if you're doing, let's say, a summarized watch through of the series, you can't skip this one. You know, this, first of all, because it's excellent, but beyond it being an excellent episode, it's an important episode in terms of the growth of the characters. And so this opens with, uh, you know, Scully losing her dad in a, in a very poignant, uh, sad moment. And then the entire episode then goes on to really explore Scully's character uh, in providing a, an acting showcase for Gillian Anderson, uh, I think. Uh, oh she's my gosh, she's, she's yeah. fantastic in this episode, just fantastic. I wondered if you 
because I, I guess I didn't try to look it up or anything, but do you know what her father is saying when he um, almost shows up as a as a apparition in the chair? Like, I wonder if there's any theories on to what he's, the message he's delivering to her. Uh, no, I didn't look it up, and I honestly don't know. And, and you know, one thing, I'm not sure. Maybe eventually it's revealed in a future episode. I, I Maybe. I, I don't know. But since I'm going through this as a sort of newbie, I'm, I'm trying to avoid certain spoilers just to sort of maintain a sense of surprise for myself. So, that, so like, I, may, I deliberately didn't look it up. But uh, at the same time, just from the sense of the episode... I don't know if it matters. I think it's a little bit like Lost in Translation, where you have all these theories about what does Bill Murray whisper to Scarlett Johansson's ear at the end, and you know, I think when people obsess on that, they're sort of missing the point. Like that's what the specifics of what he says aren't really what matters. And I think that's kind of the case here. You you, you have uh, Scully uh, sort of her her doubt has always been was her dad uh, proud of her because she had chosen a career path that was not what her parents wanted for her, you know? And so she's always carried that sort of burden of, well, you know, she went into the FBI and maybe her dad didn't approve of that. And, and so she just wants to know if her dad was proud of her and that whole thing. And, and I think that by the end of it, where she in fact chooses not to, to you know, hear her dad's message, she chooses not to do that. Because uh, she says, you know, he asked her, you know, what, what do you think he said? And, or, or how do you know what he said or whatever it is, right? And she goes like, well, he's my father. And so I think what it is, is that it's more about her looking for closure about it, her looking for a sense of peace. And I think she gets the sense that if, in fact, her father did visit her as an apparition, as like a spiritual apparition at the moment of, her, of his death, what he would have been doing there, apart from saying goodbye, of course, would have been sort of to give her that peace to say, you know, I am proud of you and I'm, I'm you know, and I'm, I'm, I love you and I'm happy for the path you chose. And so, uh, and I think that that's, I think that's the point. I don't, maybe I'm reading into I it, think that's you're what right. I think. No, I think you're right. And also that, that moment where we don't get to hear what he says, probably because of the actor uh, made me think of Twin Peaks. I was like, yes. Ooh, there's a little, there's a little creepy moment there, but obviously I think it's important for Scully to experience what she experiences in this episode, where it's almost like, so it's a role reversal because Mulder exactly. actually doesn't. Right, right. That's a, and this was apparently like I, that was apparently deliberate. What, what you were saying, you know, how how people were sort of writing off Scully as kind of just like she's the skeptic and she's stubborn and it's getting kind of annoying because she's seeing all these incredible things every week and she's still hard nosed about it. So. I think it was a way to sort of okay, but let's let's give her a moment to sort of come out and let audience members start to empathize with her a little bit more. And so yes, switching roles here is is intriguing the way that they did it, and how I mean you know Mulder gets what's the terminology they use nowadays? The, 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 Mulder gets fridged like halfway through the episode. <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so it's a Scully episode, essentially. And it's I think it's the first one, really. It's the first real Scully episode. Yeah, and for sure. It gives us that. And so she has to take the Mulder role in a sense. She has to be the one that is that is a believer. But it's not they do it in a, in a layered way. It's not so much that she's just directly a believer. She's fighting that impulse because deep down inside she's a skeptic. So she's like, I can't believe that I'm getting sucked into this. I can't believe that I'm falling for this. 
you know, it, it's it, you, you really see that struggle. Jillian um, Anderson plays it very well. Yeah, no doubt. And it's just, uh, I think I like, you know, like a serial killer puzzle kind of a storyline here with when, you know, Boggs like relays certain like decoded messages, like beware the white wooden cross or something like that. Yes. And then it actually comes into play. I think I just get a kick. Like, I feel like I get like a dopamine burst of, in my brain when you actually see the white wooden cross. I'm like, ah, yes, of course, you know, or yes. you know, don't, don't follow the, the devil and all that. I kind of, uh, that's really just, I mean, that's that could be sort of A to B to C kind of writing, but I think it always works in a very satisfying way. And again, like this could just be, and similar how we talked about the last episode, like, oh yeah, they could have just totally aped and, you know, revised the, the thing. And here it's like, oh yeah, they could have just totally done something Silence of the Lambs-like, but I feel like they give it a twist throughout yes. and make it interesting and certainly emotional. And that's the kind of what the thing that you know surprised me the most. I mean, yes, I know this this show does go there, uh, but you know, with with Gillian Anderson's performance here, when she's you know talking to him and you know almost breaking down and screaming at him at one point, then tearing up at another, it's uh, it's got a lot of weight to it. And you know, like seeing her grief and her rage, and certainly you know the very final moment is very it's. It's just, it's moving. I was like, yeah, this is a creepy episode. Brad Dourif gives one of the best performances maybe of the entire series in terms of a guest spot. Uh, but in the end, it turns out to be a, a really sort of beautiful statement about loss. And that's what I what resonates for me, at least, especially now. I mean, probably when I first saw it, all I could think about was how creepy it is. Uh, and, it's, and it's definitely that. Uh, but... Man, Jillian uh, Anderson, she should have won an award just for this episode. Yeah, no, it's it, it definitely is a, a real showcase. And you brought up Brad Dourif, and he's also one of my favorite uh, actors, one of my favorite character actors. Uh, it's always he's always good. You know what I mean? Like he, yeah. he he can show up in a crap movie, but he's gonna make like at least his scenes are gonna be worth worth sitting through the movie to get through. Because uh, because he's always going to be interesting. He's always going to, you know, put himself out there for a hundred percent, and uh, he's just interesting to watch. He's one of those actors that's always interesting to watch, no matter what the work is, right? And then obviously, in a in a situation like this, you got a really, uh, you know, a, a really quality uh, television series and a, a good episode of it, so it's the whole thing works. And it's funny you you brought up Exorcist three. And yeah, you're right. I mean, he basically, he's playing a slight variation on the character from Exorcist 3, essentially. It's that given kind of a Hannibal Lecter twist, because that's what the trope is. I mean, like, this is very much Silence of the Lambs. You know, Ice, which you, you pointed out, it's the same production team. You know, it was uh, Glenn Morgan and James Wong wrote it. David Nutter directed it. And that's yep. like a, that's a, a, a twist on the thing. Um, this is a twist on Silence of the Lambs, clearly. Which is something that was sort of a trope by that point. This is 93, 94. This aired in 94, but, you know, it was produced in 93, I guess. And it by that point, it was already becoming almost like they were doing that. They were doing that whole, we've got to have a Lecter character in the, in the movie. So this was something that was becoming a trope. It was almost becoming a cliche, but, but they handle it very well. 
uh, here. It's it, it works very well with that X-Files twist, the paranormal X-Files twist that they put on it. Yeah, and they also insert some, you know, social commentary, too, with just capital punishment, I'd, I'd say. Yes. And, you know, certainly I always was torn on that because my first exposure to, like, really being confronted with the inhumanity of that was, um, you know, Sean Penn's film Dead Man Walking. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, it was Tim, Tim Robbins. He directed it, I believe. Yeah. Yes. And yes, he did. Yeah. When I saw that, that kind of like, because I tend to demonize criminals because they do horrible, horrible things. And I'm not saying that I was ever pro death penalty in any way, but at the same time, I think that was the film that made me confront, like it confronted me with the fact that yes, <clears throat> you know, they, they deserve punishment, but I don't think this is the right kind of punishment for them and you know certainly we actually experience these moments of humanity with with brad Dourif sort of coming to terms with what he's done but also just the fact that like the souls of his victims are uh you know haunting him right as he's about to go on death row is really really st- striking and the fact that it's like in black and white and I think that uh, giving that, again, some more weight and some more depth behind it also makes you, you know, care for this character instead of just immediately going, oh, he's just a, you know, a creepy psychopath. And I think that even Gillian Anderson sort of comes to terms with that because, you know, she wants to dismiss him and inevitably she can't because she senses some humanity in him, which is really also something powerful that... I feel like they they do a lot in this episode, but it all works. Yes, uh, actually, uh, let, let's discuss that little element for a minute. I think the humanization of of evil, okay, just it will make the story more complex. You know, to to have oh, yeah. it's one thing to have a cardboard cutout villain and whatever that can be fun, I suppose. But when there's no depth to it, then you know what else? In this particular case, you have a, a man who's clearly a horrible person who's done terrible things. And as you said, he deserves to be punished, no, no doubt. But he's he's still a human being, and so what we see here is is that like that he has that very interesting line where he basically implies he says, "I know that my hell will be to visit that gas chamber every single day for eternity." But now in this one life, like that, you know, he basically what he's basically saying is, "Look, I know that I'm going to go to hell." Like I'm, I'm, you know, that there's no, there's no doubt in my mind, and so I'm gonna have to suffer that that gas chamber, you know, for eternity. But you know, I don't want to die. You know, I, I, I would like to live out my life at least, even if I'm locked in this cell. I would like to live out my life, right, naturally. And you know, and he is consciously what we realize is he is attempting a sort of redemption by helping them out. You know, yeah, yes. he's making it. He's making a deal. Obviously, he has, he has something in it for himself, but. He is trying to do something good with his gift, right? He is genuinely trying to help them them find um, uh, Lucas Henry and and rescue the the kidnapped people. So he is genuinely trying to do something redemptive. So that you know, I mean, he's accepted that he's going to hell, and and he, the the people that he's killed are going to haunt him for eternity. But he does want to do something good with his gift, at least something, you know, to redeem to redeem himself to himself. Essentially, yeah, and I, I think I think Scully recognizes that, and I think that's that again gives them a really strong bond, even though it's there's certainly moments of uh, 
of distrust and dismay and anger and all sorts of that's why i think if it, it like covers such a, a wide range of feelings for you know everyone involved uh maybe Mulder sort of if you want to make a critique just the fact that he's so much in the background and like relegated to a hospital bed is kind of disappointing but at the same time it's not about Mulder and that 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 is fine by me actually because sure. you know Scully deserves what she you know the kind of evolution of character that she gets in this episode and I think that was their intent anyway and I, th- I think it, I think it's just an interesting place to start with Mulder being so dismissive anyway about about the fact that like ah, I don't I don't I don't believe that I believe in psychics but I don't think I believe in this one in particular right yeah and that's the other element the psychic element is kind of I believe there are other episodes where you'll come across that in different ways but here it's you know really 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 memorable it's almost like they're taking the kind of multiple personality trope but applying it in a very different way with you know Brad Dorf's transformations into other people or just like recalling what's happening in the moment to, to other people and he's just so good in this yes yeah no he's 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 excellent and it's the thing where it is the sort of big acting that yeah, exactly. when when yeah. handled improperly can fall into over the topness you know what i mean it can it cannot work you know, when, when not done properly, because it's so big that that after a while, if if it's not carefully calibrated, I do think that it can it can go it can become over the top and just sort of call attention to itself. And it happens all the time. But Dorif, gifted actor that he is, uh, is able to just just stay on that line. You know, he knows just what, like how big it needs to be before it's too big. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, and yeah, so, for sure. Because he's all the histrionics. He's shaking and, and, and you know, uh, hyperventilating and all that stuff. And uh, apparently when when preparing for the scenes, he would work himself up. Uh, and when practicing for it, he he actually, his face turned purple. That's a, what I saw, uh, behind the scenes yeah. detail. So, I mean, he, he was really getting, getting all worked up into it right, to get himself into that sort of fervor. But that's the thing. I mean, he manages to pull it off without making it laughable without without it becoming too theatrical you know it's just on the line where it needs to be and and it works for the episode for the intensity that they're that they're going for um it's 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 truly truly great i mean i, I just I, I have nothing no criticisms to say about about that at all that final moment you know between Mulder and scully i think is really moving without even necessarily bringing tears into the picture it's just like you're saying about you know her just sort of learning to uh, accept what her father, you know, the relationship of her father and the fact that they had something. And she just knows deep down that, you know, he was proud of her. That's that's just a really nice, profound, poignant moment between two people again. Like, I love that they find those moments of humanity between Mulder and Scully. Like, it's clear that they have a connection and it's really strong and, you know, they want to be there for one another and... It's just uh, it's it becomes a lot. It becomes really a, a statement about a grief too in the end, and just how you have to move forward from it, but also just sort of accept that it's always going to be with you. I think because it doesn't go anywhere. That's the thing about grief. It doesn't. It's no, not like not. you know something that you can necessarily you know heal. It's just it's just, it's just with you for all time, and I think yes. that you know certainly certainly the image of those 
ghosts, even as he's walking down death row, it's like, yeah, the, <laughs> that's, that's true. It's like, you know, they, I don't know if they're literal manifestations or not, but in his mind, yeah, they're always going to be with him. And, you know, who knows where he's going to go probably to hell, especially since he was a horrible person. But at the same time, he sort of comes to terms, I think, with the fact that he's moving on to the next phase of whatever existence he's going to be in. But yeah, again, like I think you give every character here their own humanity, even if it's just a gesture of, you know, Mulder putting his arm on uh, or his hand on uh, Scully's shoulder at, at the end. I think it's the little moments like that, that give it a lot of meaning and it makes you care about these characters more than just, Oh, they're just, you know, Mulder and Scully. They're actually human beings. And I love that. And um, going back uh, to uh, Luther Lee Lucas, going back to his walk, you know, uh, as as he's haunted by the ghosts, because he describes this to Scully as happening the first time, right? That he that they tried when he got the stay of execution, when supposedly that's when he acquired the gift. So now we see that it's happening again, right? But you mentioned earlier how this sort of uh, does the social commentary, it does sort of comment on the idea of capital punishment. And this is obviously, I mean, this whole sequence uh, of his execution, the way they play that out, it's kind of excruciating. You know, you, you, you are experiencing that idea of this person who's going to a room where they're going to kill him. Essentially, you know, you know that you're about to die, right, at, at that moment. And, and the whole process of it, you know, and he's getting strapped to the chair and the way they show the putting the powder into the, you know, you know, for the, the, the cyanide powder or whatever it is. That whole scene is is done in a way really to comment on the the horror of capital punishment. And here's the thing, like in the episode itself, we see that as a concept, Mulder and Scully don't really they don't care that they, they feel he's getting what he deserves. Right. Yeah, certainly, certainly early on, you know, and and even even when when Scully feels that she was duped, you know, and, and Mulder's in the hospital, she she unloads on him and she's all like, ah, you know, if, if he dies, believe me, I'm going to, you know, I hope I get to pull the switch myself, that kind of thing. Right. And that's that's the reality of capital punishment it's like because when people want to advocate for it, they'll always they'll always pull out the argument. Well, how would you feel if, you know, some some psychopath murdered a, a loved one? And, you yeah. know, and, and the answer is, well, obviously I'd feel terrible. Obviously I would want that person to pay and, and probably I'd want to kill them myself. Right. It's why, it's why revenge stories are always going to be with us. Right. You know, right. But, but capital punishment is about that. It's like, well, yeah, but should the state do that? I mean, is that, is that really, you know, so that that's always the thing, you know, where, where that, that's where the balance lies. And I think that this, episode definitely i mean it was they were clearly trying to comment on that we're going yes this guy's horrible and he you know you could argue that maybe he deserves to die but does he really i mean is this really what we should do is this how it should be i mean think about that think this this person is just being walked down a hallway to his death it's this excruciating death he's being walked down a hallway and that's it and so like it's the sort of thing that makes you think about those things you talked about you know in dead man walking also the the um the Sean Penn character in that film, clearly a terrible man, did a terrible thing. And, you know, you could argue he, maybe he deserves it. But that's that's the thing about those stories. And it's very compelling that, they, that this episode is so layered that it has all of that going on. I was really 
kind of angry when I first saw Dead Man Walking and the fact that it made me cry over a criminal. You know, like, once he's talking about how much he regrets and he starts crying, in a way, like, that was the first time that ever happened to me, where I was just like, oh, right, I'm empathizing with a criminal and I don't want to. You know, it's like one of those things where you want to separate yourself because, oh, I would never be that way, and clearly that person is evil. Same thing with um, that Todd Salon's movie Happiness and Dylan Baker's character where he plays a pedophile. And I was really mad at that movie, too, where I was just like, um, I don't want to feel this way. That's, you know, yes. I've always put them far, far away from from me in every capacity when I know that they can do those horrible things. And so, you know, even here, it's like, you know, Brad Dourif is essentially a, a, a horrible person for what he's done. But at the same time, they give him some grace, some humanity and certainly, like you mentioned earlier, redemption for, you know, actually coming through and doing what he did to ensure that this uh, this Lucas Henry character is caught. And it's uh, it's it's just a really great, compelling uh, narrative that you get really caught up in. And even if it does a lot, I feel like every single thing that they attempt here from the very beginning feels fully realized. I know that they had some arguments in the writer's room when putting this episode together. But I think that if you were to single out in terms of great writing, as much as I love the, uh, the ice episode we covered before, this one's probably even stronger in terms of yes. the script. So, yeah, I would agree with you because it's more layered. I mean, in, in the case yeah. of ice, it's very, de- it's very derivative of the thing, but here it's, it's a lot more, there's a lot more going on in this episode. I mean, m- maybe overall, if, I, if someone were to ask me which episode I prefer, maybe I'd say Ice, like Ice might be the more entertaining one. But this yeah. one is certainly much more complex, much more layered. A lot is going on here. And it's all really just really well handled. Yeah, and it deals with the universal theme, you know, of, of loss and and grief. I mean, obviously, we don't all interact with, with uh, serial killers. But at the same time, I think... Like I said, it does it does a lot even with just that. Like like I said, it could have been a really sort of tropey ripoff of something like Silence of the Lambs, but they add an extra layer to it. It's almost like they I wonder if they did initially think, what if we combined you know the Brad Dwarf's character from Exorcist Three into Silence of the Lambs? Because that's kind of what it is, and I'm happy with that. You know, even if the episode was just that in more of a fun way, as opposed to just being really deep and emotional. I would I would have liked that too. It's like you you kind of get that to some degree with with Brad Dourif, but like like as the episode goes on, it does get deeper. And again, we get so much more uh, from Scully and what she's going through internally and what she's struggling with. And I think that really adds a lot. And you start and you as you see as the seasons go on too, there's just so much complexity between the relationship of Mulder and Scully that. Uh, makes this, you know, really exciting. Like you can certainly just get into each individual episodes, just the plots in themselves, because a lot of them are really clever and really dark and really interesting. But what keeps you coming back is their relationship and these two people, because you have to look forward to spending time with them because they carry the whole Clearly. series. And so to deepen that relationship is very important. I think, I mean, they because they do highlight this, they make a point of it uh, early on in the episode. You know, when when she goes into the office. He calls her Dana, and I think, 
I mean, maybe I missed it, but I think it's the first time that he's done that. I think you're right. And I don't know if he's doing that just because he found out, you know, that she lost her father and, you know, he's, I don't know if it's, if there's a reason necessarily that he did that or if it was just kind of like a Freudian slip or something. But yeah. I, yeah. I think it's just, again, their, their, their relationship is, is, is definitely evolving. Yes. No, and I think at that at that point, I think what it is is that he's coming at that moment. He's not coming to her as you know her her partner, her coworker. He's coming to her as a friend, and so yeah. that's why it's like I'm not referring to you by your quote unquote terminology. I'm not you know we're not Mulder and Scully right now. We're we're Dana, you know, and Fox, and I'm just coming to you as a friend, showing compassion for what you just went through. So, you know, so that that's that's why I think you know. He just he calls her Dana because he's like I'm I'm appealing to you directly as a as a friend and so that yeah I think it's a very nice moment it's it's nicely handled and so yeah this is a great episode full of great moments is there anything that we don't like about it is there was there anything that sort of that you thought was maybe didn't work I'm trying to think I nothing really stood out to me I mean I I don't necessarily need like the Lucas Henry character to be more memorable because again, it's not about him. He's more in the background. It's, it's not like, Oh yeah, we should have seen more of him being creepy and weird and stuff. Cause I don't, I don't know if that was necessary. I think it's just, you know, again, we're sort of following just some random serial killer who, well, I guess we do learn about something that happened to him with uh, some sort of car accident or he lost his wife or something. And he was like trying to reenact. I think that's where I got a little confused. <laughs> where, yeah, like was what, his, what his plan was. Yeah. And well, I mean, I think uh, if I remember correctly, it's his mother and his high school sweetheart, which I don't understand. Was he driving? Like, I don't really know, but, but there was an accident in which both his mother and his high school sweetheart were killed. I believe his high school sweetheart was decapitated. Uh, they make a point of, of that, uh, of pointing that out. And yeah, so I guess that that's, you know, he's traumatized and that's what these crimes, it seems like he kidnaps, um, you know, high school sweethearts. That's what he does. He, uh, he goes, yeah, he, okay. he goes that, like that, that's, that's an interesting, you know, the, the scene where we see the kidnapping with the two, you know, the, the couple, the young couple, uh, it's a nice little creepy scene. It works yeah, it very well. Reminds me of Zodiac. <laughs> yes, very exactly. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, that you know, they, they were trying to evoke that to some degree, clearly. They were trying to evoke uh, the the Zodiac killer killings or the son, you know, the son of Sam. Kill. They were trying to evoke that thing by, yeah. by staging that. And the only, the only thing about that one little bit, though, is that uh, the, the actor playing Jim, this kind of betrays the where this show was shot, was shot in Vancouver and obviously uh, cast locally because... He does, you know, he says, sorry. So, you know, that kind of, <laughs> that sort of jumped out at me a little bit. I, I always, like, I just love uh, pointing that out. Like, I, in watching watching the first, whenever, like, I rewatch Family Ties, I always wait, like, I, like going like back and watching, like, the early seasons, it's always, like, waiting for Michael J. Fox's Canadian accent to, to slowly go away. But, like, in those <laughs> first few seasons, you know, Alex P. Keaton says sorry a lot. So that's a very, um, that's just a... That's just a dumb detail. So, so I mean, I guess we're overall we really don't have any complaints. This really, I guess, is an no. excellent episode. Yeah. No, I, I, again, like you, you get that writing team. You'll see they've done some of the best episodes of the entire series, and you're gonna find there's more episodes you'll love more than others. But I think 
man, I, I've been I've been blessed to just choose what I think are probably the two best episodes of season one so far. I, I didn't even really plan it. I just remember like those were two titles that stuck with me, and those were two titles that I thought, oh man, yeah. When I think of the first season of X Files, what hooked me was. And that's the thing too. It's like it starts off strong. Like how many uh, series where people tell you, "Oh, you can skip the first season. It doesn't get better until season three yeah. or something." A like, lot of like a lot of series have that. Yeah, that's true. But here it starts off really great. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you're right. I mean, uh, Glenn Morgan, James Wong, really good writing team. Interesting thing about that is that okay, so they're responsible, as you're saying, for some of the show's best episodes as writers, and then they became famous for. Uh, you know, being one of the creative forces behind the Final Destination series. But here's the part that's weird to me. They didn't actually write Final Destination. You're right. If I, you know, and that, that it's like, okay, that's fine. But my point is, if they didn't, I mean, like, why didn't they? I mean, I, it, so it's a weird you would, question. You would think so. I you think know. they might have co-written it. Maybe. I th- yeah. I think that, you know, the the main guy behind it was Jeffrey Reddick. Right, he wrote the script. He's the credited writer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe they did like you know some rewrites or something. Like they touched it up or something. But I would say they must have. I would think they because if they are writers, that would just be like, look, this is a great script, great concept, but we're gonna you know we're gonna punch it up and make it make it better. And they didn't take credit for maybe they weren't allowed to. You know the the WGA rules and all that. Yeah, so there, and then David Nutter, the director of the episode, who also directed Ice and has directed several episodes of X Files that are also very good, as I understand it. He's a very good director. I mean, he gives a gives the episode a really cool cinematic scope. It's it's nicely put together. It's just a good episode, like all around. Just everything's great. It's a good creative team. So yeah, you have a lot to look forward to for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt it. Um, so I guess that's it. Right? Is there anything else that we haven't discussed? Uh, not that I can think of, no. I'm very happy with uh, revisiting this episode and, and, and continuing to move forward with the show because it, it reminds me of what great television can be. And not only is it one of those shows that you want to keep continuing with, uh, it feels like revisiting old friends. All right. Well, thanks for joining me. Is uh, I'm going to go ahead and let you now uh, do a little plugging because I, I really think that I'd like my listeners to to know where they can find you and what kind of great stuff they can get from you elsewhere. So go ahead and tell our listeners uh, what they can do. Well, the, the the main hub, the main place you can go to is nowplayingnetwork.net because there's links to not just my show, but a bunch of great podcasts from other people that uh, love to nerd out like we do about movies and music and all sorts of pop culture. So go to nowplayingnetwork.net for, for all of that, uh, including links to my other shows, Voices and Visions, which is a sporadic interview podcast that I try to keep up with, and uh, Directors Club, which is a monthly show where I talk about a particular film director. Uh, very, it's been going on for ten years, even if we only have like 180 episodes. Uh, I'm I'm still very proud of the run that we've had, and uh, it's going to try and keep going for at least another year or two. I. I, there's so many directors you can cover. It's it's. We'll have to have you back on again next year for some for someone else too, for sure. Oh, I'd be. I would love to, and I and I'm going to like second that recommendation. Definitely check out that network. But uh, if you only pick one podcast, uh, I would say definitely Directors Club is is fantastic. Just great conversations that go on there. And um, yeah, and we had a good one on M Night Shyamalan. I was very happy with that episode. So yes, that was that was a fun one. 
Two and a half hours talking about Shyamalan. Not bad. Not bad at all. Good times. (laughs) Good times. Well, thanks again. Appreciate it. And thank you, Jim. Always a pleasure, and I will definitely have you here soon. I was considering Boggs. If he knew that I was your partner, he could have found out everything he knew about me, about my father. Scully. Beyond the Sea was playing at my parents' wedding. Visions of deceased loved ones are a common psychological phenomenon. If he knew that my father had... Dana. After all you've seen, after all the evidence, why can't you believe? I'm afraid to believe. You couldn't face that fear? Even if it meant never knowing what your father wanted to tell you? But I do know. How? He was my father. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. And if you did, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us a like. Take a minute to write a positive review and go ahead and spread the word on social media. The podcast is available on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. Look for the Eric's Antoine Network on Facebook or on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric's Antoine Net and check out my film reviews on Letterboxd. I would also recommend you follow Jim on Letterboxd at NowPlayingJim, but also please heed his advice and check out NowPlaying.net and enjoy a whole bunch of good podcasts, not the least of which is Jim's own Director's Club, which I'm a big fan of. It's been running for about a decade now and always features comprehensive discussions of a particular filmmaker. They cover the gamut from John Frankenheimer to John Ford to Jonathan Demme, from Martin Scorsese to Don Coscarelli. It's good stuff, and I'll be providing helpful links for all this in the episode description. I'm Eric Antoine. I'll be back in a few days when Daniel and I will be discussing Genderbender, which, let's be honest, probably would be seen as a lot more quote-unquote controversial and quote-unquote problematic today than it was 30 years ago, and all because of its provocative title. In any case, I hope you'll join us. And until then, let's all remember that the truth is out there. See you next time.